Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, we'll have the latest on the federal government's fall economic update, which promises new money for housing, as well as tax reforms to crack down on short-term rentals. But what about eliminating the deficit and reducing regulations? Plus, we continue with our series, The Next Million, as we look at Metro Vancouver in 2050. Today's Squamish First Nation Council Chair, Hal Salem, joins us to discuss First Nations development and the impact on Metro Vancouver. Plus, God, are you there? We look at why some people want to ban prayers in council chambers. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's jump in today. Uh, Finance Minister Christia Freeland provided a fall fiscal update for Canada. The spending document uh, comes with a broad focus on affordability issues and housing. Uh, here are the key takeaways. The deficit for this fiscal year uh, is expected to hit, get this, 40 billion dollars. That's with a B, folks. Uh, while the $14 billion gap was projected for 2027-2028, now it's expected to hit $23 billion and falling to $18 billion the following fiscal year. Now keep in mind, with these massive deficits, the government was elected in 2015 with a balanced budget. The government also announced several new measures to boost housing supply in the coming years, starting in 2025-2026. It will provide an additional billion dollars over three years to build more than 7,000 new affordable homes. Also starting in 2025-2026, it will provide an extra $15 billion in new funding for the construction of more than 30,000 new rental homes. Now, yesterday we talked a little bit about federal legislation when it comes to short-term rentals. Uh, The government says it will deny income tax deductions for expenses incurred to earn short-term rental income, including interest expenses in provinces and municipalities that have prohibited short-term rentals. So that will be right here in British Columbia. The government also says it will spend $50 million over the next three years to support municipal enforcement of restrictions on short-term rentals as well. Now, besides that, keep in mind, 45%, that's 45% of all mortgages in this country uh, will come up for renewal in 2024-2025. Now, one of the proposals introduced today, you would see homeowners with an insured mortgage up for renewal not have to qualify at the minimum qualifying rate. As you know, that's called the stress test. Uh, The stress test sees Canadians qualify for mortgage at rates higher than what uh, they they would be paying as a buffer against interest rates. Uh, With the new legislation, uh, this basically allow uh, homeowners, existing lenders, the upper hand when negotiating the new mortgage rate at renewal. They will have to go through a stress test when they're going to a different financial institution. But if they go and renew with the financial institution that they're with already, they don't have to match that stress test. Lots in this fiscal update. Here's Finance Minister Christia Freeland. We are also making it easier for more than 250,000 Canadians and counting to buy their first home with the new tax-free first home savings account. We're lifting the GST on new rental construction to make it more affordable for builders to build so that they can build more homes faster. We're repairing and building hundreds of thousands of new homes and we are financing the construction of tens of thousands more. We have banned foreign investment in Canadian housing, and we're ensuring that property flippers pay their fair share. We're making it more affordable for families to construct secondary suites. And we have signed agreements with cities across the country 
to slash the red tape which is preventing homes from being built in the first place. And in exchange, we're providing them with new funding to build more than 100,000 new homes faster. So there you go, a chicken in every pot. It's interesting that this government uh, wants to continue to spend, but at the same time, they do have a slowing economy and challenges in regards to uh, that uh, deficit uh, here in Canada. Joining me now is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Richard, welcome. Oh, do we have you there, Richard? Oh, looks like we may have lost Richard just for a moment there. Did we? Oh, looks like we have lost him. All right, we'll pick up Richard uh, in a few minutes. We'll grab him as quickly as we possibly can. Now, one of the other things that uh, I had mentioned that Christia Freeland did mention was that the federal government does want to crack down uh, on short-term rentals. Uh, They said they'll deny income tax deductions when short-term rental operators are not compliant with the provincial or municipal licensing, permitting, or registering requirements as well. Here's Christia Freeland uh, talking about cracking down on short-term rentals. We'll be cracking down on short-term rentals listed on sites like Airbnb and Verbo, which are keeping far too many homes off the market in communities and cities right across the country. That's going to make a real difference to Canadians. All right, that's Christia Freeland. Joining me now is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Hello, Richard. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. Uh, walk me through your thoughts on this. My, my sense is that you've got a slowing economy, yet a government that has to uh, you know, dig itself out of a, the, a political hole in regards to how it's doing up against the Conservatives and Pierre Paul. Give your sense of uh, what all this means today. Yeah, so it's about targeting housing. They know the one big issue on many people's minds will be the housing crisis. And if they are looking at renewing a mortgage in the next two years, there are a lot of people in this province worried about being underwater when that renewal comes. And that very large looming prospect that they would not qualify for that renewal. So the move today from the federal government helps relieve some of that pressure. We've already heard here from Housing Minister Ravi Callon, one of the things he would like to see is BC at the front of the line here when it comes to accessing those billions of dollars now earmarked to new housing. The province has long called for Ottawa to peg new housing money to immigration numbers, which would mean that BC would get a greater share of the money than based on population. It's not something Ottawa's agreed to yet, but there is some confidence here from the province that we will get a pretty good shake when it comes uh, to the percentage of that money earmarked for housing. It will take time to build the housing, but BC really wants to ensure that they get in the line to get that money. And the province is trying, or sorry, the federal government, as you described, is trying to win some votes here uh, by showing that it is hitting at least part of the affordability crisis, and that's the housing part. Um, the, one of the issues when you talk about no GST uh, on rental construction, we're already seeing some of the challenges there. The, the, the federal government came to make an announcement here, I think it was in Burnaby, and uh, it turns out the Metro Vancouver government, the regional government, basically said we're going to charge developers more uh, because growth must pay for growth. The federal government said, wait a minute here, we're trying to take the GST off rental construction and you guys are charging them on the other end on the regional level. Wait a minute here, we don't buy this. So how do we get around that locally here when the federal government says we'll take away the GST on rental construction, but the, the local leaders here say, wait a minute, we've got sewer pipes to put in, we've got other infrastructure that has to go in, developers will pay it, so we're going to increase the development cost charges. 
Yeah, Minister Callow's already been trying to play traffic cop on this one because he keeps saying that Metro Vancouver Board needs to get out of the way when it comes to these development fees. And the Metro Vancouver Board, led by Mayor George Harvey, has said, well, we need to find a way for developers to pay for these crucial amenities, paying for the piping to go in under the building, making sure that that infrastructure is in place in order for the building to run properly. So there's a bit of a standstill here. And that, in essence, means that BC will be precluded, sorry, Metro Vancouver will be precluded from that housing accelerator fund. This announcement today, my understanding, is different than the Housing Accelerator Fund, Mm -hmm. but accessing that Housing Accelerator money, Jazz, is still crucial for Metro Vancouver. Those communities need it. Uh, We know that there's the naughty list the province put out. Those communities need to build housing, and they need support from Ottawa to do so. So there's a bit of a standstill when it comes to that regard. One that the minister is trying to negotiate through, but so far mm-hmm. it's dragging out at this point and there's no resolution. I'm curious, do you think, you know, when you look at all these governments now compared to 10 years ago, I think they're all getting it. It's about housing, it's about supply, uh, and getting a lot of these, getting all these types of all this housing on the market as quickly as possible. But what I find interesting, I was reading an article yesterday with Ontario Premier Doug Ford complaining about the federal government negotiating directly with municipalities in in that province. And he was talking about jurisdictional overreach. Uh, And here uh, you have uh, the municipal governments complaining about the provincial government, the fact that they brought in zoning themselves in regards to building three and four units on, on a single family lot. It's all pre-zoned. It seems like every government, whatever level they are, are complaining about jurisdictional overreach, uh, whether it's the provincial government complaining about the federal government, the federal government complaining about uh, the regional government. You've got municipal government here saying, wait a minute, you're zoning now, Victoria? Now you guys are there's jurisdictional overreach. I mean, it's, I mean, just watch, I was watching this all this week and I'm going, you know, we have to work together on this. Do you think you're actually seeing some work where they are actually working together? Or is it just me here? It looks like everybody seems to be complaining about another level of government saying, wait a minute, you're just, you're, you're not in your lane. No way, Jeff. In Canada, <laughs> they're complaining about over, uh, overstep when it comes to boundaries. No way. Um, you know, this is the long-fought challenge. I remember with Premier Christy Clark, when she was here and getting pressure from the opposition, the first thing she would do is head to Ottawa and pick on the federal government because it's much easier to attack than it is to defend. And you'll see all levels of government playing the blame game. You know, municipalities blaming provinces, provinces, provinces blaming the feds. But I think there's a universality when it comes to concerns about housing. And how we get solutions is the great debate that all politicians have been grappling with for a decade now. But I got a real sense when I was at UBCM in September that we have a common interest here between the Metro Vancouver mayors and the provinces. And yes, we may hear some concerns from those Metro Vancouver mayors about how the province is going about this and the pace in which they are putting together legislation and the impact of that legislation. But largely, and the province knows this, uh, the voters want to see the housing crisis addressed. And that means that whatever bickering there may be is far less important than actually trying to come to some solutions when it comes to housing. Will what Minister Freeland put forward today make any difference with housing? I don't know. But it is going to send a message to the public that this government is attempting 
to find some financial levers to pull when it comes to addressing the crisis. Richard, thank you. My pleasure as always, Jazz. Have a good show. Let's talk uh, dollars and cents, but in a different way. Of course, uh, lots of year-end uh, deals out there. I know social media is now filled with tons and tons of deals, 20% off, 40% off, 50% off, uh, from, as I said, shoes to, to, to clothing to even cars. Well, joining us now to talk a little bit about uh, year-end deals and what you should be spending is Peter Shashecki. He's a registered financial planner and president of the Everything Financial Group. Good afternoon, Peter. Good afternoon, Jazz, and I guarantee you that $40 billion isn't going to cost you and me a dime, right? <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight face, but I tried. It's, well, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, first of all, it's our kids' money at the end of the day, number one, as you <laughs> and their know. their kids' money. <laughs> and their kids' money. But, you know, we're of that vintage. We know how difficult it was in the 1990s uh, to, to slay the deficit, to get rid of the deficit, to eliminate the deficit. And it's it's tough on any government. You've got to make some deep cuts. Uh, and yeah. we, we eventually got out on the other side. But, you know, it, it, it's not going to be easy. There will be a fiscal reckoning, number one. It'll be, if any government doesn't want to do it, fine. It will be imposed on us by bankers eventually, number one. And number two, um, you know, this government was handed, whether you like the Harper government or not, a balanced budget. Uh, and uh, these guys just drove a you know a Mack truck through that. So yeah, we might update you on that in a couple of weeks. I know because next week it's more important because really next week's pledge day, so we're not doing our normal mm-hmm. show. But I've got some info that I'll probably try and bring to the table in a couple of weeks about how all the different levels that created the debt. Because it's not just one; it's no. it's a lot of other things. So we can. A lot of that came out today, so we'll save that for another day. Yes, we will. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, the deals deals that we're seeing at the end of the year here. Uh, you know, uh, especially when you look at cars. Never mind just you know uh, basic things. Now, when you when you look at what's being offered, what should you be looking for? Well, when you're looking at cars, you want to look at uh, one thing is interest rates. But the big question everyone always has, and I've heard this from everybody: Should I lease or should I buy? Well, a car, for one, is a depreciating asset. So that's the worst thing to ever spend money on anyways is something that you're going to lose money on the second you get it. But when people ask me that question about lease or should I buy, well, when it comes to a lease, if you can write it off and you get a good tax deduction out of it because you're self-employed or because you're a commission salesperson or you own your own company, let's say, and you get to tax deduct that based on CRA rules, then look at the lease. But if you don't get to write it off, Look at the purchase, because the most expensive way to ever pay for anything is renting it, and a lease is a rent. So unless you qualify, look at the purchase option. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the, the, the rates where they're at at this particular point, um, how much of a down payment should you, should you be looking at? Uh, oh, great question. Wasn't expecting that one, so here you go. Um, zero. <laughs> and I'm explaining to some people, go, but my payment will be like... X or, you know, whatever that'll be. But think about it this way. If you're buying it and you know the second you drive it off the lot, you've lost 30%. -hmm. So say you had a windfall and you have 50 grand in your pocket and you're going to buy a car because someone actually asked me that question. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, but the second you drive it off the lot, your 50,000 is worth Mm $35,000. Like you never get that money back. So put in as little as possible, and there's still, and here's the neat thing, a lot of these dealers and manufacturers are still giving great finance deals. Well, I'd rather lose 5%. Now, 5% sounds expensive in these days, but when I do math, 
losing 5% and paying that is a lot better than losing 30%. So look at different ways. And, and, and I did this for someone who, a listener of yours who asked this question. Mm-hmm. You can take the money you're going to pay from a car, put it in a very simple, safe investment that doesn't earn a ton of interest, but earns something. And basically at the end of the six years, they had just about 40% of their money left. So it's not like they wrote a check and got rid of all the principal. They got rid of some of the principal. At the end of the day, they're going to have a paid-for car, but they're still going to have money in their pocket. And that's why you try and never pay cash for anything because it's very hard to replace that principal once you get rid of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you say you, you lose so much driving it off the lot, you know, would you would you recommend buying a used, a year or two old, where it's still relatively new, but uh, you don't have to eat the depreciation? You can, and you can. You know what you can do if you're a commission? We talked about those lease people. Mm-hmm. You can actually, there's companies out there who lease two-year-old vehicles and three-year-old vehicles to you at a very competitive rate, but the initial purchase price is 30 35% lower. It's definitely an option, and, and there's a lot of companies who still sell very good competitive warranties for those used vehicles if it doesn't have a manufacturer's warranty still. So that is a definite thing um, to look at because anything that's going to leave more of your hard-earned money in your pocket but also make the net cost at the end of the day lower Mm -hmm. is good because as you and I always talk about, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. So figure out a way to keep more and spend less. Is leasing still popular, though? I'm curious. It seems to me, maybe it's anecdotally for me that I, I thought more people leased five, ten years ago than they do today, or maybe I'm just off. It's still very popular um, in the right things. Now, what, why it's, it's, it's not known of as much as it was before is because CRA implemented some rules about you can only write off a, you know up to a, so much of a lease payment and everything else. Like there's just some caps on it. But it's still, if you're in that ballpark, I mean, if you had a $1,000 payment and you're in a high tax bracket, well, your lease payment on $1,000, maybe after tax, if you're 40% tax bracket, you're really, that car's really costing you $600 or $550. Mm-hmm. So you got to look at, again, net dollars spent and how much you keep. So don't discount it just because the lease payment is a couple percent higher. People always get focused as on percentages. Mm-hmm. Don't look at percentages. Look at real dollars in the end out of your pocket. And, you know, the the purchase payment might be 2%, but you might be spending $900, and the lease payment might be 4%, but after tax, you might be spending $600. So you've got to get your registered financial planner and and get them to crunch the numbers because a car payment is just not a purchase is still part of your overall financial plan and how much money you're putting out and how much are you keeping. That's the big thing. Peter, thank you. Thanks, Jazz. I look forward to uh, Pledge Day next week. It should be fun. We talked about the fall economic update, a $40 billion deficit projected for March, and many other deficits projected after that as well. And as I've said before, I'll say it again, this particular government was handed a balanced budget. And here we are. But let's set our sights on the provincial economy just for a second. 
Uh, our next guest has been on the show before. Ken Peacock is the chief economist and senior vice president at Business Council British Columbia. Uh, and he's been on here before talking about the Clean BC Roadmap. Now, this roadmap uh, focuses on modeling in regards to dealing with the issues of climate change and sort of legislating rules in regards to how we deal with our greenhouse gas emissions. But at the same time, uh, Ken uh, discovered something as he was going through the province's Clean BC Roadmap. Uh, he joins us now. Ken, thank you for your time today. You're very welcome. I wanted to talk about this because it was brought up in the provincial legislature today during question period. Walk me through, when you're going through the Clean BC Roadmap over the summer, to my understanding, what was the one data point that really stuck out for you? Yeah, so so what's going on here, Jazz, is, is the government uh, undertook a, a very comprehensive and extensive modeling exercise to uh, understand uh, the impact of the policies uh, in the Clean BC plan, which includes $170 a ton carbon tax, hard emission caps in sectors, standards and regulations, and and so on, uh, so that they would have a sense as to whether or not they would be able to uh, realize and meet these targets. But of course, intricately uh, intermixed and tied with that is the impact on the economy. So they also simultaneously did this economic modeling. Uh, And this is where the story gets uh, a a little convoluted. The Business Council has worked closely with the provincial government on all aspects of climate policy and energy policy. And and we, uh, over the past three, four years, routinely asked for modeling results, insight into what the policies would do and whatnot. But we're, we're sort of informed that no such modeling results were available. Anyway, fast forward to this summer through a bunch of uh, uh, circumstances, unforeseen circumstances, and, and some accidents, uh, I stumbled upon some modeling results that indeed the government had done and posted on its website. Uh, and the, the, the punchline or the bottom line of that is when they look at the difference between uh, a scenario that doesn't have the clean BC policies, instead it has $30 a ton carbon tax, kind of the the business as usual world up to 2017, where we did have some climate policies in place, but not as much as in the roadmap plan. Then we compare this scenario to the projection with the roadmap plan policies in place. And what the result is, is the BC economy growth slows to a crawl. And in 2030 is $28.1 billion smaller than it otherwise would be. So this slowing to a growth, uh, big reduction in economic output, uh, this is wages and income, mostly the households, really got our attention, Jazz. That, that's sort of the overall summary. So the economy is shrinking. Now, we have taken into consideration we have people moving here. We've got international students coming here. So the, the people are still coming here. But when it comes to our potential of our economy by 2030, it actually shrinks by $28 billion. Now, is it a particular, is it one sector that gets hit really hard or is it sort of a, a broad case issue here that it's everybody that's impacted? Yeah, this, this uh, again, this is part of the reason we were so surprised when we found this result. So I just got to clarify a little bit. So the economy doesn't shrink $28 billion from today or from 2020 or anything like that. It, it, it's $28 billion smaller than it would, than it would otherwise be in 2030. So, it's, so we are going to get some growth. But, but to your point, the uh, annual average economic growth in this model uh, or within these projections as a result of Clean BC 2030 
slows to a crawl in the second half of the decade, just 0.4%. Uh, you know, usually 2% is kind of respectable. Three and a half is growth uh, in GDP is strong. 0.4% is bumping along near, near recession territory. And to your point, uh, when we recognize that we're going to have population growth uh, almost certainly in excess of 2%, this means on a per-person basis, uh, the economy is indeed contracting. Uh, there's less income. And, and we, economists, we talk about GDP per capita. That's just shorthand for prosperity and well-being. Mm-hmm. And the result of this population growth, while the economy slows to a crawl, means per capita incomes fall. And, and jazz, they fall back to levels that we uh, had in 2013. So it's about a 17-year setback in prosperity and well-being in BC, uh, and this is this is why this has really got our attention uh, at the business council. So it, it, this is in regards to you know your standard of living as an individual and the potential you would have. This sets you back uh, quite a bit. Is there a particular sector? Going back to my original question, is there a particular well, yeah. sector that gets hit harder? Uh, I'm just curious as to what sector is going to absorb a lot of this, or sectors. Yes, yes. Apologies, you did ask that, and I got I got a little distracted. Uh, it, it, this this is the other thing. So what the modeling results show is it really hurts the foundational sectors, the export sectors of BC's economy, because those are the more carbon intensive areas. So our mining and our pulp and paper sector and our fossil fuel industry, they get really really set back, um, you know, to the point of it's which mills are going to close down, which projects don't proceed, which people get laid off. Uh, type of type of impact and then there's spin-off negative implications that go throughout the economy companies and businesses selling services to those foundational sectors and then there's fewer goods and services being bought by households in the model presumably that's being picked up because households and people are not as well off so all these things are captured and the interrelations in the modeling chapter and the result is every single sector that is modeled. The model uh, produces results for 24 different sectors in the economy. Every single one is smaller in 2030 than it would be otherwise compared to the reference scenario, Jazz, with the exception of electricity and electricity uh, transmission. And this, of course, makes sense because the Clean BC Roadmap is about electrifying as much as we can. So the impacts are right across the economy. Uh, and, and this is one of one of the results that is really, really quite surprising, uh, and a second a second element that, to repeat the phrase, really got our attention at the business council. So you know, I I just had uh, Andrew Weaver on yesterday on the show. We were talking about um, uh, the Earth hitting two degrees Celsius above uh, pre-industrial times, and and it was just for a brief moment on Friday we hit a, a new record in regards to climate change. Uh, and we all see the wildfires here. We we've, we talked about the heat dome for many times on this show. Now, climate change is real. Does this mean that that we need to at this you know we have to deal with climate change? But in regards to carbon tax, this is a question that we need to pause for for a while until people's incomes and salaries and industries can 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 cope with this. That we're just moving too fast and dealing with some of this. Yeah. So there's a bunch there's a bunch of pieces in that in that question, mm-hmm. Jazz. Um, most certainly, I, I've been looking and we've been looking at at all these results and the plan. 
and the history of BC's greenhouse gas emissions. And it is absolutely the case that this short timeline, just six, seven years from now, uh, with 40% reduction in GHG emissions below 2007 level, uh, it's, those are very aggressive. It's the combination of the near term and, and the aggressiveness of the, of the targets. Just, just so listeners know, right now or in 2021, BC's GHG emissions were about two and a half or three percent below the reference year. So we have another 30 and a, seven, 37 and a half percent to make up in the next, next six or seven years. So it really is a stretch. So this is why you get the economy, you're having to dampen down growth in the economy broadly in order to be able to, to meet, meet those targets. That's, that's something that is going on. So I, I, what we are asking is, given these inordinate costs, I mean, this really is a world, Jazz, where there's greatly diminished opportunities. And I, I am particularly concerned about diminished opportunities for younger people, especially given the other backdrop that, that it, we are current, currently find ourselves in. So uh, that, that's the concern, very broadly diminished. And so given those costs, we do need to ask ourselves, uh, also considering that BC accounts for just 0.19% of global emissions, uh, and if we m- met those very aggressive targets in 2030, we, s- we still would be 0.19 or maybe 0.187% of global emissions. Uh, and if we don't meet those very tight targets, we're probably still going to be 0.19% of global emissions. So I think I'm, I'm just asking, it's reasonable to say, absolutely, we've got to sh- sh- bolster up uh, our, our uh, infrastructure for extreme weather events. Um, so perhaps, you know, just given these extreme costs, we should focus more on resiliency, recalibrate timelines to, 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 to some degree uh, with these inordinate costs in, in mind. It's kind of, a, but it's very difficult to know. We don't have full information, Jazz. We just stumbled across these modeling results. So we're operating a little bit with one hand tied behind our back in, in terms of trying to understand all the implications. Uh, I, I get your point, though. A small subnational economy of 5 million people isn't going to save the world. We have a role to play, but we're still not China or India or the United States or many other large economies. That that, that point I totally understand. Ken, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. As we continue our series, The Next Million, the series airs every Tuesday and Thursday. The series has been looking at Metro Vancouver through the lens of another million people living here. Now, our population presently is around 2.8 million people and is expected to hit 3.8 million by 2050. How do we accommodate uh, these new residents and how do we work, live and play in a region with a million more people? Now, recently, recently we looked at our shortage of industrial land in Vancouver. We also looked at how we should govern the region with a million more people. And what does food security look like in the context of region adding more people yet wants to protect it protect its uh, agricultural land. Uh, last week, we also looked at policing in Metro Vancouver in 2050. On Thursday, we'll be looking at energy needs of our city mid-century. Now, today, we wanted to discuss First Nations communities and their role in a region of nearly 4 million people. One only has to listen to news and you realize from Squamish to Kitimat, from Tawasan to Williams Lake, First Nations are making strides to build capacity for their communities and, uh, and become key players in the provincial economy. That's definitely true here in Metro Vancouver. 
Vancouver. Now, in 2022, Post Media analyzed eight major projects involving the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, both individually and together under the MST Development Corporation joint venture. Uh, and their uh, plans cover property in Vancouver, Burnaby, and the North Shore, which are promising uh, just over 25 thousand homes and those are three first nations remember metro vancouver residents live on the shared territory territories of many indigenous people including 10 first nations the kwatlin the, the coquitlam uh, matsqui musqueam kakite semiamu squamish tawasan and slaywatooth nations all these nations have diverse and distinct histories languages and cultures joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, metro vancouver in 2050 in our series the next million we're joined now by hail salem who's the council chair for the squamish first Nation. Hail Salem, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a bit of a long intro, but I just wanted to provide a bit of context in regards to our region here uh, and where we're headed. Uh, I want you to just look into the crystal ball just a little bit. I think it's 2020. Where do you envision the Squamish First Nations in regards to development, in regards to uh, capacity within your own community? Give me a sense of what you dream dream of what 2050 looks like. 2050 is one of those generational goals that we're also focusing on, even in the Squamish Nation. You know, we're developing a generational plan and thinking about these things right now. Mm-hmm. It, I think that what we would see is that uh, a number of the lands that we've held on to for over 100 years uh, will have been developed. Um, the, the North Shore will probably go up in size by about 30 to 40 percent from the development just on Squamish Nation lands. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you'll see through the partnerships that we've created with both municipal governments and federal and provincial governments that an alignment with the land use planning decisions that we make on our lands with the major infrastructure like on transportation, whether it's rapid transit or new bridges, things like that. So I think that there'll be a lot of collaboration um, over the next uh, few decades, but I think we'll see the nation succeeding at demonstrating that we are capable of delivering a lot of housing both on our privately owned lands and on our federally owned lands and building these really nice, wonderful, complete communities that people want to live in and have lived in for a number of years. And I think it'll be a huge success story, not just for Vancouver, I think for Canada, mm-hmm. that given the history of Canada and the challenges that have happened between Indigenous peoples and, and the government is uh, you know pointing to a real success where this idea of Indigenous people are going to use our land to help address the housing shortage for the general public and welcome people to live uh, amongst our people in our communities and, and use that as a way to generate economic prosperity for our communities. So that's your vision for 2050. What's standing in the way of that right now in your mind? What are some of the obstacles or challenges? Well, I would say the biggest one right now is is the economic outlook of Canada. You know, whether it's a recession or whether it's just the volatility right now that's happening, the the, the interest rate, uh, the amount of public debt that has climbed over the recent years, uh, these are all contributing factors. And so I'll just use an example. Um, when we look at the 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 world of capital markets, whether it's Canada or international, and the way that things are shifting in that regard. Um, access to financing, especially for real estate projects, is is becoming much, much more difficult for every developer, I think, uh, operating in Vancouver or in most of our cities. Um, there's a certain threshold that I think lenders and the private markets are willing to to bear. And, and uh, as interest rates rise and as mortgages become more expensive, there's just going to st- there's a little bit of this sort of um, wait and see approach, which is making it more difficult to access capital. So I think that's going to be a big challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the labor shortage and labor needs to be able to deliver on some of these things is going to be huge. You know, when we look at some of the projects that we're doing on our lands right now that are underway, like we have three cranes up in Kitsilano right now. We're going to have another three up um, by summer. 
Um, we have other projects like at Jericho on the west side or Heather Street development uh, near Oak Ridge. Um, there's a point where we have so many projects underway that when we start looking at prime or subcontractors and there's a small pool of them that actually can do the job um, or available at a certain time, um, there's certain critical pathways to getting to a building actually opening up. And I think the labor issues and the challenges there are going to be huge. I think the aging population is a contributor to that in terms of uh, the labor pool we have here in Canada, which is why I think the feds have made a, a pretty drastic change in immigration policy. Um, but then I think more so than that is um, there's there's a lot of, of really, I think, well-meaning intention going on into the work of reconciliation and supporting First Nations. And I think it's just making sure that uh, those intentions are followed through on and that we start to see, I think, tangible results. There's a lot of um, activities that can feel, are these really doing anything? Is this making a difference? And I think it's fair to have criticism of some of that, but uh, it's really making sure that we are following through on the things that need to be done and getting to those outcomes and, and delivering results. Do you have, you've talked a lot of these macro issues, whether it's the economy, labor challenges. Do you have capacity in your own community to deal with this? I mean, you still need the planners, you still need uh, the CEOs, you still need the communications mm-hmm. experts. You need a little of all of it, right, at all times. It's a challenge for anybody. Uh, are you building that capacity within your community? You see that? That is a huge challenge um, and opportunity. I mean, we're fortunate as a Squamish nation, and I've always um, talked about this more recently, is that you know Squamish nation has about 4,100 uh, enrolled citizens in our nation. We're also an amalgamated nation. So we used to be 16 separate communities and came together and, and amalgamated into one. So when we look at the talent pool that we can draw upon, we're actually very fortunate, I think, compared to other First Nations, where if you have 4,000 people in your community that you can train and 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 a mentor or put into a, a, a pathway, that's a lot of people to draw on compared to if you're a community of 500 or 1,400. So we have some strengths there. There are challenges. You know, we do not have enough uh, urban planners. We do not have enough architects. We do not have enough uh, accountants, lawyers, financial um, uh, advisors. There's a whole suite of professions and then even things like teachers, doctors, nurses, etc. So those are all, I think, real challenges where I think we've been very um, smart is about uh, four years ago, the Squamish Nation started making a massive investment into post-secondary education for our people. So we fund every single Squamish person that wants to go to post-sec, we will fund them. We only receive a certain amount of funding from the federal government for that program. But about four years ago, we said we're going to start spending own source revenue, so revenue that we generate from our leases and our businesses and other uh, non-government related revenue. And we're going to start spending a portion of that towards post-secondary education because we really felt that that investment will pay off over you know seven, eight years when those people start to get their degrees uh, advance in their careers and they can come back and work for a community. And we're seeing it now, you know, the CEO of our economic development company uh, is a First Nations woman who's from the Squamish Nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, form, uh, she was an accountant uh, as a senior partner in a major accounting firm, now leads one of the largest economic development companies in Canada. We have a number of senior staff that are occupying roles because they've been able to be supported in their educational uh, careers. Um, And so we're seeing it start to pay off. And I think that continued investment is going to continue to pay off. 
Just joining us, we're speaking to Hill Salem. He's the council chair for the Squamish First Nations, part of our Next Million series as we look at Metro Vancouver with another million residents by 2050. What does that all mean? We're talking about uh, First Nations development, lots of development occurring, not only uh, between the Musqueam and the Tooth and the uh, Squamish First Nations, but uh, there's 10 First Nations in, of course, the Metro Vancouver area, and all of them uh, will be looking at different types of development. Uh, now, Salem, let's touch on uh, Sinoc just for a second, and you've been on the show before talking about that particular development. Squamish is also involved with the Jericho lands as well, and that's a longer-term conversation. Uh, but one of the things I sometimes perceive, and I guess even indirectly see, I saw it on social media not too long ago, I think you were responding to someone. There's this notion that the Squamish First Nation don't have the capacity, or at the very least, they're not doing the consultation or the you know, anytime a project has to be approved, there's a tremendous amount of research that has to go in in regards to its feasibility, uh, its marketing, all of that. They felt that the work at a First Nations level isn't being done. And it doesn't have the capacity uh, that, say, a traditional city city council or city hall would. Uh, and you push back on that a little bit. Do you, do you still think uh, Squamish First Nation, many First Nations communities, when in regards to development of these large residential communities, are, are still dealing with some of uh, that attitude? Yes, I would say that there still, you know, remains a, a, an attitude by some out there that um, I think undervalues or underestimates the capacity or the capabilities of First Nations people and governments or organizations. But one of the things that's really interesting about Sanok, and, and I know that some of this is just these aren't the headline details that end up out in the public realm, but there's some just some facts that I think are really interesting. So one of them is uh, the Squamish Nation advocated for and then utilized federal and provincial legislation to bring a number of fe- of provincial regulations in place on our reserve lands. So the Residential Tenancy Act, we worked with the province and the feds that the Residential Tenancy Act will apply on our reserve. We, we're working through um, tying into the BC uh, building code so that it'll be certified under their codes. Uh, it will already be certified under the City of Vancouver's building codes, but as people might not know is that city of Vancouver doesn't have to follow a BC building code. So we're actually doing both. And then on the business side, um, we didn't decide to do this on our own. We did a competitive bid process to the development community to pick a development partner because we recognized that we didn't have both the project management experience or the pre-development experience um, to actually carry out a project at this scale. And then through that process, they actually brought in a third partner, which is OP Trust, uh, one of the largest pension funds in Canada, as a as a twenty percent uh, owner of of the overall development, so they and they do a significant amount of real estate de- uh, uh, investment, um, particularly in rental. So when we look at uh, the question, is really around risk. What's the risk that this is not going to work, or it's going to cause problems, or it's going to mm-hmm. uh, fold, or and that kind of stuff. And what we were able to do is throughout the process find multiple ways where the nation opted into processes to actually make it less risky. Because for our perspective. We want to be able to generate long-term cash flow, but we also want to be able to stand by the quality of the work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, when I look across this province, and I always look try to look beyond uh, Metro Vancouver coming from the interior myself, I look at wineries, resorts, LNG, housing we're talking about here, cannabis. There's all different types of businesses First Nations communities are about. Uh, I'm very curious, uh, and you're going to be involved in for a very long time, what is the internal conversation when when uh, uh, non-First Nations aren't there <laughs> in regards to are you preserving your culture? Mm-hmm. Are are we are we getting away from 
our core ethos and philosophy as First Nations people. I'm sure that conversation goes on, that things are changing so quickly and so rapidly. Do we have a sense of who we are, a sense of self? Does that conversation go on? I would say, yeah. The The, the question is really about identity mm-hmm. uh, and, and who are we and what are our values, what are our customs or practices, how do we relate to each other? Are we in effect, you know, becoming more uh, assimilated into the mainstream society and how much do we practice things that we hold uh, important to our, our culture and our community. And I think it's a very uh, salient conversation happens in lots of First Nations communities. But we also have some data. You know, we just did a census in my community where the top priority uh, when uh, 40% of my people were polled, top priority was um, they want to learn their culture mm. and they want to access to learn about their language. Wow. Yeah. You know, other priorities were things like healthcare and housing, but amongst the, the things that they want to see more of, it was language and culture. And when we look at the economic development that we're doing, there's a there's a vision there to generate revenue because we don't want to rely on the government to pay for everything. Generate revenue and raise incomes of our community and use the revenue that we generate collectively from things like Sanok to invest in things that are going to raise the individual household income like education, career placement, et cetera. So uh, our people will be able to hunt on the land and fish in the rivers and speak their language and practice ceremony and go to longhouse. They're much more likely to be able to do those things if they have a, a meaningful income, they have meaningful work, and they have access and supports um, to all the amenities that they would need for that. We can we can do that through developing our lands to pay for those things, and so I think that it's not um, they're not opposed to each other. They're um, in some ways a means to an end, but at the same time, when we're doing the business we're doing or the type of business we get involved in, we want to make sure that that is also living our values, whether it's environmental protection, support for our workers, things like that. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate you coming in. Thank you. Yesterday, Mayor Brenda Locke announced that Surrey was launching yet again another legal challenge to stop the uh, the transition from Surrey RCMP to the Surrey Police Service. Uh, she said that the, the latest move is a significant step to stop the policing transition. Uh, and uh, the, the, the particular court challenge was done because the city wanted to challenge the constitutionality of the province's latest legislation. Now, one of the things Ms. Locke mentioned on this show yesterday uh, was that she was concerned concerned about um, financing the transition from the Surrey RCMP uh, to the Surrey Police Service. Take a listen to her comments. This is a decision forever that will impact our taxpayer. And and we just quite frankly um, can't believe that the NDP would impose this tax, this police tax, on our city. And so we are going to continue to uh, make sure that the city understands that residents, that taxpayers understand that the NDP is imposing a significant, probably 20% or more, a double-digit tax increase on, on our residents. And as I said, not just for today, not just for 2024, but forever. Now, Ms. Locke also talked about the fact that, uh, that there was a tremendous need, of course, for, uh, if the transition were to occur, a uh, tremendous need for police officers for uh, the burgeoning Surrey Police Service. And, and that alone is already having a huge impact on other municipalities who are either losing officers or having difficulty recruiting officers. Take a listen. So on the municipal side, the Surrey Police Service will be, without a doubt, hiring from other police services. And we do know that... Um, 
some areas, and New West has just recently made comment about that, that they have lost already too many of their members to Surrey Police Service. And we know that's happened in West Vancouver and other municipal police forces. So where else are they going to get constables? Surrey Police Service does not have enough frontline officers, not even close, and they haven't increased those numbers for some time. We know they have uh, higher-ranked officers, um, but uh, we know that they are unable to hire constable ranks. That was Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke uh, joining us yesterday. Well, joining me now is BC's Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth. Uh, Minister, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, first of all, your thoughts uh, on this announcement yesterday on yet another court challenge uh, in regards to this transition. Um, it's just a continuation of the delaying tactics that the mayor has been trotting out uh, that involve lawyers and a lot of money that, quite frankly, uh, could be better spent elsewhere. Um, we are very confident in the, not only in terms of the decision, that was made, but also in terms of the legislation and its constitutionality. Uh, All of those things are taken into account when legislation is uh, being uh, developed. Uh, So, um, you know, it's unfortunate, um, but uh, that's the mayor's choice. And uh, the transition continues. It doesn't delay the transition. It doesn't stop us from moving forward. Uh, any of the work that needs to be done uh, is continuing to, to being being done. So you're not worried whatsoever in regards to the legal challenge and you don't think it's going to, nothing is going to be reversed. You're very, you're very uh, confident uh, in uh, the legislation itself and it's not going to be reversed in any way. Absolutely. All right. Uh, now, uh, last week, uh, you suspended the Surrey Police Board and appointed administrator, uh, Abbotsford, uh, former Abbotsford Police Chief Mike Sear. Walk me through what that budgeting process looks like with this administrator now. Okay. So the administrator will be uh, developing a budget, obviously, and the, 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 that is the, the role of the police board, and the administrator is now has assumed the, all the functions of the police board. So they will develop that budget, uh, obviously working with the, uh, the, the chief of police um, and presenting that budget to the city of Surrey um, for the, the city of Surrey to, to approve, to, to consider, uh, and that that, will, uh, that budget will be the, the continuation of the, uh, of the, the policing transition. Mm-hmm. Um, if the city of Surrey were to say, let's say, reject that budget, it would go, they would be able to, either party would be able to send it to the director of police services who has the uh, statutory authority uh, to make decisions around that budget. Should it be tweaked? Should it be changed a bit? But ultimately saying, hey, this is a budget that has to go, has to go forward. Uh, that's not a new um, component of the Police Act. It's one that's already that has been there uh, since the Police Act was in place, uh, and it has been used on previous occasions uh, when disputes over budget have arisen. So, if there was any attempt at uh, delay, intransigence in any way, uh, the Surrey Council could not slow down or stop the bud- budgeting process whatsoever. This is a done deal. It's moving forward. This transition is moving forward. Uh, there will there will be uh, a budget, uh, and that uh, uh, you know uh, the, the transition is 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 going ahead. Uh, the legislation says that Surrey will be policed by the, the Surrey Police Service. Um, there have been trilateral meetings underway with the the, the federal uh, the, from involving the feds, the province, and the city. 
developing what needs to happen. And what really needs to happen is for the mayor to understand the decision has been made and that it is time to move on. And just to confirm, the mayor to us said uh, the overall cost to the city for this transition is $450 million, give or take. And, and that doesn't include, uh, you know, some hard costs, a gun rage potentially, IT services, uh, all of that. Um, the province has put on put on the table $150 million. Is yep. there going to be, A, any more money, number one, and is there any conversation about finding a middle ground here? Like, is, is, does $450 million uh, sound reasonable to you? Does that, is that a number that you've seen being discussed at all? Or is this some sort of out of left field for you? The, uh, there have been all kinds of numbers that have been put out there by the, the city of Surrey during the election campaign, after the election campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, when they put forward their, their initial plan, um, you know, they identified that the difference between the RCMP and the, 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 the Surrey Police Service would be about $30 million a year. Uh, we had that uh, verified by Deloitte. Uh, that was the basis for putting the $150 million uh, on the table uh, to uh, say, look, you know, we are prepared to assist given the size of the, of the transition involved and given the importance uh, that is the largest RCMP detachment in the, the country and how uh, what happens, um, you know, uh, impacts other uh, police detachments right around, right around the province. So, and, and I'll be clear again, because I've said it a number of times, there is no more money. Uh, my final question to you, uh, yesterday Ms. Locke was on this show, and one of the things I brought up was, look, she's talking about all these numbers, potential increases, uh, and as you know, uh, municipalities send out a notice right before property tax time to remind people what the increase will be and where the dollars will go. I asked her when it comes to whatever increase there is, and if there is one for uh, policing, what she plans to do with that notice. I want you to take a listen to what she said. The Surrey taxpayers do not want to have double-digit tax increases. This has never, ever been about... Um, public safety in our city. It's important to know that Surrey residents voted to keep the RCMP in Surrey. They voted on that because the Premier and the then and now Solicitor General said time and time again, it's up to Surrey. We have made our decision and just because somebody has a philosophical reason for wanting to see a provincial police, they can do it in another city, not in ours. Jazz, it's going to be in 16-point red on the tax form, and it's going to be the Surrey NDP police tax. It will be bold and loud and proud, and they'll wear it. Every one of the MLAs in Surrey, every one of the NDP MLAs in Surrey that have chosen not to stand up for the residents for their tax implications will wear it. We will make absolutely sure that the taxpayer knows what is happening to our city. This is a NDP imposed uh, tax. This is an NDP police force. I just wanted to give you a time to respond to that. That uh, certainly appears Ms. Locke is not uh, going away anytime soon, and she is, you know, making this uh, is going to be an issue uh, next year as we head into a provincial election. Any response to the fact that she is referring to it as an NDP police tax, and she's going to put that on the uh, on the on the tax on the uh, notice that goes out to uh, Surrey residents. Well, I'll make two comments. First off, I I think calling it the NDP police, I think it does a disservice to the men and women um, who have a very difficult job and put their lives on the line every single day 
policing in Surrey, and that's regardless of whether they are a Surrey Police Service or an RCMP member. They do an incredible job, and to sort of pol- politicize the work that they do by calling it an NDP police force, I think is, is, is just disrespectful. Uh, second, um, the reason, uh, you know, in, in terms of taxes, it's the delays that cause the increase in costs. From the time, you know, I note the mayor initially ran on a campaign on a platform of, of we, we want to move to a Surrey police service. You know, that was the original position. Uh, and I get that, you know, she changed her mind and wanted to, to move to go back. That also involved considerable costs. The reality is, is there will be a budget uh, that will be presented to the city of Surrey by the police service. The transition is going ahead, and it is in the long term. It ensures a safe um, and effective policing during a transition, and that decision has been made, and it will not be reversed. Minister, as always, thank you for your time. My pleasure. I don't know if you've heard this, but the Rolling Stones have announced a North American tour. They'll be playing in Vancouver uh, Friday, July 5th, and tickets go on sale December 1st. We're joined now by our show contributor, Jerry Mayer Judson. How are you today? Oh, fantastic. I'm looking out at the weather to try to comment on it. It's pitch black outside. So I it's, know. You know five to, it's okay. I'm, I'm good. Daylight We're savings. In there. We'll get rid of daylight savings time today. California decides to get rid of it. We oh, actually have yeah. legislation already. It's all written. Yeah. It's approved. And we just need the green light from south of the border. Yeah. Just another instance of things. Well, I guess this is a thing not happening in Canada that is we, happening like, in America. We can't with do like, it alone once yeah. the California, California yeah. goes, then the other Western states follow, and then, Ooh, and we then go. New York, and then the whole stock exchange is on the same thing. It'll yeah. be so good, but, but not now. Yeah, but like it's actually been written, and we've actually approved it. It's just ready to go. You just got to take the cover off we the button just, and press it. Gavin Newsom, the mayor of, uh, uh, sorry, the mayor, the governor of California, is going to decide, and we move forward. So yeah, I voted for that. Actually, it was in legislature. Right on. Yeah, Thank you. So I would like a bit of light in this studio. It's so cool. <laughs> but anyways, this is a digression because yes. we have to talk about the Rolling Stones didn't come here and neither does anybody else. Taylor Swift only brought the Eras tour to just Toronto and then just Vancouver. We're getting skipped over just as a nation and lately even yeah. more so than usual. So I talked to Glenn Mickelson. He is the entertainment manager for the CV Center in Prince George and he's a certified venue executive. So I asked him, Glenn, what factors are at play when a musical act skips over Canada? You know, a lot of the acts that are coming through touring market right now in North America and coming up into Canada, there's a, a variety of reasons. One thing that's pretty significant for all of us in Canada is the U.S. dollar. So of course, most of these acts want to get paid in American dollars, and when you're paying 1.41, 1.42, so over 40% on the entertainment, that can increase the cost quite substantially. So when you're doing your budgets and trying to create your ticket prices, that increased cost, almost 40%, it's kind of challenging on the consumers to want to pay that amount for ticketing. And they don't understand, uh, you know, the significance of that exchange rate, but it's certainly, you know, an impact and uh, on the ticket price that uh, the consumers have to pay. I mean, ticket prices just with time passing and inflation are already comparatively so ridiculous. If there was more Canadian U.S. dollar parity, we might see more... Artists come in this way. And as, as you mentioned, they're inflation, right? So increased costs as far as renting your production equipment, your lights and sound. Plus, wages have gone up. 
So all the people that are involved in a show, from the stagehands to the riggers, to the people unloading the truck, to the truck drivers, to your guest services, your ushers, your security, first aid staff, all those people are involved with it. They're all getting paid more. You know, minimum wage has gone up in British Columbia. And so all that has also increased to the cost of putting on these shows. This Certainly this year, as Vancouver has seen, is that there has been a substantial increase in the number of stadium shows. And that's not just in Vancouver, that's across North America. Plus, not only stadium shows, but uh, major artists like Springsteen has gone out. And these various acts, you know, they're trying to get out there and work because they weren't able to work for a few years. So they take up all the various resources within the concert industry. So that ranges from the sound and lights to the staff who can travel to put on the shows. That's the buses that the artists travel in. That's the trucking companies. So when those big tours are using all those resources, that makes it tougher for smaller tours to access those resources to put on tours that might want to go through smaller communities in British Columbia, like ours in Prince George. So that's another challenge. Resources are being used in these super tours and just uh, taking up dollars and resources from shows that might want to come through here. Do you think that this is just the normal now that we can come to expect and destination concerts are going to be what we're, how we're going to have to experience our, our artists and their live shows? Or do you think there's a way back to the normal that we had become accustomed it hasn't fully played out yet. You know, looking at uh, our schedule here in Prince George, but looking at, you know, a colleague in, uh, also in Edmonton, they're just saying like the first two quarters here coming up in 2024 are not very busy. Summertime in arenas typically is not very busy either. So it could take until next autumn when things start to pick up, but it still could take some time for this all to play out. And you're right, you know, for people who live in Prince George, you know, they make the effort to go see Taylor Swift. That's who they want to see. They're going to make the efforts to travel wherever. And for those mega tours, you're right. They don't have to go from each town to town and, you know, play these small venues. They can just play these larger venues, stadiums. And, you know, like you said, people go to see them. So I think it's going to take another year or two to figure this all out, if it's going to come back to normal or if this is going to be uh, the new normal with people having to travel to see the act rather than the act traveling to meet the people. What industry has COVID not turned upside down? Truly none. You no, can't exactly. find any. And like the entertainment industry, live entertainment especially, got hit so hard. People retrained. Yeah. And so now we don't have enough staff to staff the stuff. It's off. It's I, I miss just going to Ticketmaster and spending $80 and going to see an artist in the town that I lived in. But hey, I know, we're in these new times. I know. It's, it, I think we're saved because Seattle's so close. That's true. You've got a major uh, urban center there. So two hours up the road isn't, isn't so tough for folks. Not so tough. But no. like, bring it here. <laughs> bring it up north for the love. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.